Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It is midday Eastern Daylight Time and of course on Ausbiz that is time for the call one hour going through 10 stocks that you've suggested that you'd like to know more about as we put them to our panel of experts. 10 stocks, 60 minutes. We're on at this time every weekday, uh, midday until 1pm Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, first couple of days, we've had some uh, great suggestions from you. Send them in, email through the website on our Facebook page or um, or you can send it through on Twitter as well. Joining me today is uh, Scott Phillips, Chief Investment Officer of Motley Fool uh, that we have on Skype, uh, and also a regular on Weekend Sunrise as well. I've got to plug my other job as well. Scott, good to see you, mate. Good to have you aboard. Thanks, Coffee, mate. Good to be with you. And uh, also joining us, Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Michael, good to have you in the Osbiz Studios here at Brand Group. Very impressive. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a good start to the week and a good start for the call as well. Um, before we get on to that, um, Scott, um, the market this morning, good bounce back up. And, and one of our stocks from earlier in the week on the call centre has had a, a good increase today on, on getting some good financing behind it. Yeah, it's been a nice way to kind of recover from what's been a terrible, terrible March. So maybe we start April with a positive result, which frankly, we'll be pretty happy with after a really tough last five or six weeks. Essentially, as you mentioned, look, property stocks did well yesterday. Not super surprised to see it do well today, but that financing deal in particular. I mean, look, cash is king right now. If you've got the finance, the market's happy. If you haven't got the finance or you're worried about the finance, your share price is in the doldrums. So any company that could put an announcement out and say, look, we're okay, we're covered, is always going to help share price-wise. Yeah, Wayne, it really is all about market, uh, Michael, rather. It's all about uh, market sentiment at the moment, isn't it? As Scott was saying, if you can show, hey, the books are in shape to get through this or to get to the other side of the bridge, as Scott Morrison is coining every interview yeah. he does now, um, it really does bring confidence back into the stock. Well, that's right. I mean, when, once you've seen such large-scale pullbacks really across the market, there's no need to be looking at those turnaround stories, those businesses with terrible balance sheets. You can look at those companies that have really had consistent revenue growth, able to maintain their margins and very low levels of debt on their balance sheet. You can just pick up those companies because in many cases, they're down 30 40%. There's no need to move up that risk curve after you've seen such big pullbacks yeah. like we've seen. Yeah, go the blue chips. Um, really reinforce that foundation yeah. of your portfolio going forward. Right, let's get stuck into it. The call is all about 10 stocks that you submit. You want to know more about buy, hold or sell. And we'll put them into our panel of experts. Today, Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of Motley Fool and Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial are joining us. All right, uh, Michael, first up, uh, Zip. The old zip money yeah. uh, in that afterpay 
type of space and um, a digital financial group? Yeah, look, Afterpay, Zip Money, these were serious market darlings really for the last 12 months or so, but they've come back to earth uh, with a thud. Uh, the big issue, I suppose, for these companies in this environment is the cost of funding, not only debt funding, but equity funding if they were forced to come back to the market. Um, obviously, you've got a situation where we're going to have a significant pickup in unemployment. So will these people be able to repay their debts? Um, so debts in arrears is probably going to spike as well. So it's a challenging environment for these companies. It's their first true litmus test. Um, it's been a pretty dream run for them. But once the consumer's under pressure, uh, you'll start to see these companies being called into question a little bit. Um, they're obviously far more attractively priced uh, than they've been yep. in a long, long time. So that might draw some people to the table. But given all those unknown factors, we'll be steering clear just for the moment, just to let this wash out and play out a little bit more. Yeah. Scott, what about Zip? Yeah, I can't uh, I can't disagree too much with Michael, I've got to say. Look, I think Zip is, it's a fantastic look. Afterpay, look, let's be clear, Afterpay, one of the great innovations, Australian innovations of the last probably couple of decades, right? It's succeeding where even Bankcard couldn't retain a place in the Australian financial services system and now doing it overseas. You know, one of those great ways, it's literally invented a new payment method globally, which is not nothing, right? So let's let's give them some credit for that. Zip on their heels trying to do something similar, slightly different customer bases, different amounts of money we're talking about. The real risk here, and I have to agree with Michael, is the is the financial wherewithal should the worst happen to the economy. And frankly, it kind of is happening to the economy right now. We just don't know how this nets out. So look, I think it's an interesting one as part of a high-risk portfolio if you're that way inclined. But this is one of those ones you've got to be buying 10, 15, 20 stocks with really high potential but potentially very high risk, hoping net-net you work it out. So could it do well? Absolutely. Is it probable? I don't know we can necessarily go that far right now. So one of a very large basket of high-risk stocks potentially, uh, but no, not on its own. Yeah, just out of interest, uh, Michael, will you put Afterpay in the same boat? Is it an either-or or avoid both? I think Afterpay is slightly better quality because their recoverability turnover um, is actually a bit higher than Zip Money, so it makes them a bit more credit worthy. But they are very similar um, and in their infancy, and they're going to struggle to keep raising money to continue their expansion and their growth. So that's our biggest concern. Will the growth numbers that we've become used to be replicated in the next six to 12 months? And it's highly unlikely because they're not going to be able to get the bank funding facilities, and if they do get them, they're not going to be at the same interest rates as they were in the past. So look, happy to sit and watch them and have them on the watch list because they can be very exciting businesses. And if we get out of this scenario better than expected or, or the base case scenario where things improve after three to six months, then maybe they'll come roaring back in that scenario. Because Scott, they're being hit with a double whammy, aren't they? Uh, maybe a deteriorating loan book and the quality of the credit there. Plus the fact you'd imagine retail would be falling off a cliff with uh, all the retailers closing. Yes, they're keeping their online stores going, but hey, none of that foot traffic going into bricks and mortar, which is the lifeblood of these uh, buy now, pay later groups. Yeah, that's exactly right, Kosh. And if you think about the way this nets out, to Michael's point, if they make it through the next six months, they have cheaper chips. So you kind of got this this weird scenario where you're saying those are there's a whole lot of companies in this in this uh, webjet even by the time it comes back trading right if it yeah. makes it through that being seriously diluted or seriously low share price then and it makes it through this when it gets back to its former glory at some point two three four years into the future even there's a lot of money on the table to be made now if it doesn't you're in real trouble and that's exactly the zip story mm-hmm. as Michael's mentioned Akash, as you say you got you haven't got people going into stores right now it has some degree of lifeline to just keep ticking over because of that online business. But yeah. as, as Michael says, 
higher bad debts, a higher funding cost potentially. In fact, they're very, very big and dominant alternative and afterpay. Zip is still the little brother and many businesses who are using Zip rather than afterpay either need to because of the structure of their products, either they're more expensive products or because there's a sweetheart deal with Zip and I get either. But right now you've got to think about it and think, okay, well, is there enough left? If there's one uh, arrow in, in Zip Pay's quiver, it's simply that it's smaller than Afterpay. And to some degree, if you can go from two to three, it's easy to do that and go from 100 to 101, same growth, right, in terms of absolute numbers, but your percentage growth is much higher. So Zip has something in the, in the back pocket. It's simply that it can grow faster from a smaller base if it can get its story right. Okay, Michael, uh, from a portfolio point of view, for, for viewers now, and, and you're both saying, hey, look, if it gets through the other side, it's as cheap as chips at the moment, but, but we're not quite sure. Sort of, do you look at stocks like this in this basket that you and Scott have been talking about um, and say, look, if I've got 10 bucks to invest, I invest nine of those into these great blue chips, the Wes Farmers or the CBAs or whatever, because you know, they're great, great foundation stocks at a really cheap price. But one of that 10, I'll stick into companies yeah. like Zip, Webjet. If they get through, hey, it might, might just give the portfolio um, a, a good lift. Look, by all means, um, have a portion of your portfolio that you're dedicated. But be prepared to lose the but one. That, that's the thing. So it's all about balancing weighting positions correctly. Yeah. I mean, you obviously wouldn't have as much of a percentage of your portfolio in something like a Zip as you would maybe, say, a big four bank. Yeah. That just wouldn't make sense. The volatility is far greater and the risk is completely different. But in order to get a bit of a kicker in your portfolio and generate some outperformance or alpha as it's termed sometimes, um, occasionally these businesses can really deliver for you um, in a very, very large way. And I mean, Afterpay's test case, that sort of came onto the market at $1.20 and only a matter of weeks ago, it was at $40. So yeah. if you can pick some, one or two of these winners, it can do some serious um, benefits okay. to your portfolio. Let's move on to our second stock, uh, Scott Cochlear. Good med tech. Yeah, I like Cochlear, Cochlear a lot. It, obviously, it literally invented the technology that it uses. It's not the only competitor in this space right now. It is particularly expensive on most earnings multiples, even after the declines come back a little bit, as you can see on that graph. So to some degree, you know, some of the opportunity may be going to make really serious money from that decline, and maybe there's a lesson there for next time. Let's hope it's a long way away. But when you see quality businesses fall that far, that fast, often a buying opportunity. Um, great business, really big global reach. It is the premier brand in this space. Um, it's a company that really, you know, it is synonymous with its product. I mean, you can get that sort of branding, that sort of, uh, and not only branding, but the professionals that use the product are actually recommending it, right? If you get the doctors and specialists on board to say, this is the product that we use because it is the best in the market, that's the sort of business that you want to be in. Now, Cochlear has had some short-term troubles. More recently, it had to raise capital to pay a legal bill. Um, now, some, again, testament to the strength of that business that it can raise that capital and simply keep going forward. But it's not maybe as cash rich as we might like it to be. That being said, I think the opportunity for this is still enormous. Something like, and it's a single digit percentages of hearing impairments are being dealt with properly now right around the world. If you think about its dominance in the West and the growing, despite the coronavirus, and let's get to the other side of that, the growing need for hearing um, alternatives, options, uh, cochlear implants in this case, around the developing world is just going to be phenomenal. Think about China and India population alone. You can't simply say, well, 2.2 million people, therefore this is how big cochlear can be. Uh, but if you think about the inherent growth that comes from those countries becoming more affluent, plus throw in Indonesia and plenty of others, I think it's a really, really long runway. 
Lastly, what I like about Cochlear is not only does it have the, it's got a patient for life, right? If you implant one of its devices, you're not going to swap it out anytime soon. So the, the, the sound processor, the hardware, the software that goes with that effectively gets you a, a customer for life. That's a pretty good mm. recommendation and a great way to get some recurring revenue. Of course, the health impacts are more important for the people that have the implant than the, the money they get from them. Um, but broadly speaking, a really, really high quality company, one of the best on the ASX in my view. Yeah, yeah, puts a new spin on on lifetime customer value, doesn't it? Um, what do you reckon, Michael? You're a fan of yeah, Cochlear? It's a great Australian success story, Cochlear. It's been an incredible business for a long, long bit of time now. They've obviously taken a very big hit in the last uh, month or so because elective surgeries are basically put on hold um, and the installations of new devices has been put on hold. They did raise some money, I think about $850 million the other day just to shore up their balance sheet a little bit. So they've managed to get themselves in a better position to withstand whatever um, might be thrown their way over the next six to 12 months or so. Um, but it's a, a great quality company. Um, as Scott was saying, they've got a very long runway as more and more emerging markets develop because the number of people that are actually treated with a cochlear ear implant is far less than the number of people that could actually deal um, with that treatment or with that um, implant. The problem that Cochlear have had in the past as well has been that they've, rather than getting new implants out there, they've had existing customers upgrade implants or purchase different accessories. Um, but they managed to overcome that issue in the last year or so. So look, going back through history, pullbacks of this magnitude for Cochlear have always been an opportunity to purchase the company. Going back, I think, to 2014, they had a big recall for some dodgy products that were out there. They've had some competition build up from Chinese imitation goods that were an issue for a while, but then people went back to a quality established player in Cochlear. So our view is that if this weakness was to persist, it's certainly something that we would look at given it's a business with a great balance sheet and good track record. Okay, all right, big tick for Cochlear from both of you there. Uh, let's get on to uh, the resources sector now. Uh, and Scott, Newcrest Mining. Koshi, I'm not a massive fan of resources companies at the best of times. Look, if you're a long-term investor and we tend to be you really want to be careful about cyclical plays and cyclical nature of mining means not only is it cyclical in nature, but you're a price taker rather than a price maker. That very rarely behoves a great share price result as, a, as in the organization. So long term, very, very tough to make money out of commodity players. That's what these guys are. Uh, I think there's worse commodities than gold out there, by the way, but, but that's still in that bucket. That being said, Newcrest is a really interesting time right now. The share price is down meaningfully over the last period, as you can see there. The challenge, of course, is the gold price is up. Now, normally you would expect that when the gold price was up, we would see uh, a business like Newcrest doing very, very well on the back of it. Now, there's exchange rate things going on, there's a whole lot of things that are, are impacting the business. And of course, just generally the requirement for financing and operations. Broadly speaking though, the gold price is so high right now that it feels like it's exactly the wrong time in the cycle to be getting into gold miners in my view. You wanna buy commodity plays if you're going to, when the commodity price is low and the closer to the marginal cost of production, the better because you've simply got less downside there. If it's close to the marginal cost of production, that means it's break even or close to it for the mining industry globally. There's much, much less chance the price keeps falling. Now it still can, look at oil, look at oil recently. So it still can, but it's unlikely to and unlikely to stay that way for very long. So the odds are best in your favor when the price is low. Now gold has been flying because of the uncertainty around the share market. We certainly know all about that. And that means that it's a, it's a brave person to say the gold price will stay or go higher over any extended period of time from here. And if that's true, there's every chance this might just be the best of times for Newcrest or around that. Maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months. And again, if you're a trader, different question. If you're a long-term investor, as I said, we are, you want to be taking a very long-term look. I just don't like playing 
commodity mm -hmm. players generally, and even less so when they're at some cyclical highs when it comes to the commodity price itself. Okay, Michael. Um, Newcrest is the largest gold producer in Australia, uh, but it's had its problems over the last decade, really. They've purchased this uh, mine called Lahir Gold probably five years or so ago, and they've had a production downgrade again from that mine recently. Um, they operate across four different countries, um, which gives them all different sorts of risks. Um, currency that Scott touched on is one of those factors. If we are to play the gold space, we prefer the more simple Australian-based gold producers, because often they incur their costs in Aussie dollars, and then they right. sell their gold in US dollars. So they actually benefit from the double whammy of a falling Aussie dollar, but also a rising gold price. And they've got less assets and less mines to manage. So our preferences in this space, if you're going to play in the gold space, is Evolution Mining, which is a pretty low-cost producer. You've got Northern Star Resources, which is sort of a mid-cost producer, and then Saracen, which is more leverage to the gold price. So that's yeah. the way we would prefer to play it. Um, Newcrest Mining, although it's done okay on that chart, the gold price has done very, very well over the last couple of years, but relative to its peers, it's been a perennial underperformer um, because of the complexity of that business. Okay, all right, good one. Uh, cross next to Newcrest there. And let's turn our attention to the uh, to the big four banks and see how they're faring. Um, a lot of our viewers, Scott, are interested in ANZ. Gosh, yeah, I, I think the, the big four banks are in for a tough couple of years. Um, if we think about the things that are impacting the big four, we always got the current problems, which are just you know, dwarf everything, overwhelm everything else that we're looking at right now. Uh, it's going to be a very, very tough time for ANZ to get profit growth moving forward. Now, rightly, the share price has fallen really significantly. And so to some degree, that's factored in largely. I think what we need to be remember, and, and Koshi, you know this, and Michael, you're probably too young, mate. Uh, not that you're not smart and experienced, but uh, you've got more hair than either Koshi or I have. Uh, Westpac almost went broke in the early 90s, right? Rescued yeah. by effectively a, a bit of a sweetheart, godfather deal. Uh, and people have to just remember a little bit that we talk about the story of the banks over 30 and 40 years now, close to, and being fantastic wealth builders, and they have been. I just want to be a little bit careful that our viewers don't possibly see this and think it's always been great, they've always done well, therefore. In a different universe, Westpac went broke in the early 90s, and we're talking about big three rather than big four right now. I just want to think about that in the context of this one. Again, I don't think it's likely, I don't think it's, but it's, but it's possible, right? So it's not probable, but it's possible. Just factor that in. Don't hang on, hang on, hang on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Through. Scott, Scott, Scott. You're Go scaring on. the daylights out of us at the moment. <laughs> um, so you think there is a possibility for a big four bank to do a Westpac of, of um, 1991? I think, it's, I think it's possible, yes, but I, I say possible as in it should be part of your range of outcomes. I'm certainly not saying probable, and I'm certainly not saying people should be necessarily unduly scared about it. But yeah, that's right. I mean, you think about the, the conditions of 1991, the recession we're about to go into is probably going to be deeper. It may not be as long as the early 90s recession here in Australia. And if the government does get involved, remember, the government will save the depositors. It won't save the shareholders if there is a bank bailout, at least unless they, they're very, very kind. So I just want people to be mindful of that. I'm not saying go and sell all your bank shares. I'm not saying run for the hills. I am saying with any of the big four banks, just remember this is not a zero downside probability, right? There is yeah. some risk. You're not saying run for the hills, but, but, but you're saying get out of the starting blocks by the sound of it. Jeez. <laughs> Look, here's what I think. I think it's a, it's a pretty attractive price right now for those banks. I think the income remains decent. We may well see dividend cuts. We may well see some sort of shoring up capital raisings happen. So let's let's take that in. That yeah. still makes the banks not overly expensive. I think there is a place for, for the banks in the portfolio. I think, by the way, Koshi, sorry, sorry the, 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 uh, the, the grey cloud, the dark cloud, most Australians have way too much exposure to the big four banks in their portfolio. Yeah, no, Some have 40, 
of their portfolios and big four banks. No one should have 60% of their portfolio in any industry, let alone oh. the bank. So just be, be mindful of that. Of the group, though, ANZ looks like the most the best price, I should say. So for all of that, just remember where I started with, and it wasn't my intention, um, ANZ, just for the valuation alone, I expect the big four to move roughly as a group. They are so dominant now that it's very, very hard for any of them to break away meaningfully. Commonwealth Bank, much more expensive than the rest. I don't think that's necessarily justified over the long term. ANZ, probably the cheapest or about the cheapest of the big four. So if you wanted to have exposure or extra exposure, I actually think ANZ would be the one I would go with. I just wanted to make sure our viewers didn't take that as a, a green flag to say, right, go and fill your portfolio yep. with banks, nothing can go wrong. Okay, Michael, are you a bit cheerier on the, the big four banks? Uh, somewhat. I mean, Scott and I have had conversations about the banks a lot in the past, and I've been pretty negative for some time. And look, at the moment, um, the environment is very challenging for banks. We all know interest rates are at record lows, which puts a lot of pressure on the net interest margins of the banks. It makes it very hard for them to be as profitable as they have been in the past. You have to remember the interest rates came down from 15% in the early 90s to where they are today. We had a big explosion in credit, housing prices went through the roof. It's a perfect environment for being a bank. Yep. Um, that same situation is unlikely to be replicated again going forward. You know, one year, five years. You've had the Royal Commission as well, which has constrained not interest income for the banks too. Um, so we are a little bit cautious. You've got a situation where there's pressure on return on equity. Payout ratios are very high, so they're going to have to come down. Dividends are likely going to be cut. Um, looking at the ANZ specifically, they've got a lot of institutional clients relative to the other banks, and they've also got a higher percentage of unsecured residential loans compared to some mm -hmm. other banks. So I'd say that ANZ and NAB, because NAB's more of a business bank, are probably most at risk from this coronavirus. Not at risk of going belly up, but right. most risk of having some pressure on their earnings given the current environment. Um, but they are relatively attractive on a PE multiple basis compared to some of the other okay. banks. So. We're a, a pretty neutral banks, only because they pull back a long way. Um, but going forward, they're not as attractive as they once were. Dividend yield looks pretty attractive at these prices, though. Will they be able to maintain the dividend? Sorry, which one? The dividend yield. Uh, uh, look, the, big four. the way we look at dividends is return on equity times payout ratio. If your return on equity falls, then it's very likely that your dividend will be cut as well right. as your earnings come under pressure. All right. We've got Commonwealth Bank coming up a little later, so interested on your view on that. In the meantime, you are watching the call between midday and 1pm every afternoon here on AusBiz as we go through the 10 stocks you're most interested in and we put them to our panel of experts. Today we've got Scott Phillips, Chief Investment Officer with Motley Fool and Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Uh, next one up, uh, Scott, your view on Wes Farmers. So Michael mentioned, Koshi, that uh, West Farm, you know, talk about blue chips and the companies that will likely, if not do fantastically well, at least are decent bets in this current environment. I'll put West Farmers out on the very top of that list. Um, West Farmers, for the last decade or so, was seen as a supermarket operator. I think that was always the wrong, we said at the time, always the wrong way to look at West Farmers. It was a, an investment company that happened to own retailers for a short period of time. Um, probably bought Colson too much, probably held it longer than they wanted to, but brought it as an investment conglomerate first and a business operator second. Selling off that uh, stake in Coles, which they did, I think was Monday night, I think was a, a smart idea. They've got more in the war chest now. That gives them heaps of flexibility. We're talking about having cash flow enough to get through the crisis. They can either go and make some opportunistic buys if the opportunity presents itself, or simply know they're not going to have to tap the capital markets. That's a really, really good option for West Farmers. I like the fact they've sold out a bit, bit more of Coles. I think the business that they didn't necessarily want to own in the first place, they held because they felt like they had to. They're getting out of that. That's a positive. Overall, I think you want to think about West Farmers 
as an operator of high quality businesses with high returns on equity. To the extent they can do that, Mike has already mentioned ROE today, that's, that's a really good place to be. Now, some change in the boardroom, but they've got a really deep culture of making smart, thoughtful investments. And again, Coles possibly even the exception to that rule. Um, but I like West Farmers, particularly for someone who wants reasonably stable dividends, who wants reasonably conservative management and a high quality business with a very long track record. Very, very hard to go past West Farmers for a conservative bottom draw, um, someone who doesn't want to take too much risk, but still wants a decent chance of a good return. I think West Farmers fits that bill really, really nicely. So a really good corner scene, you talk about Koshia, that portfolio of 10 or 20 stocks, if you want to have a portfolio that has some cornerstone positions, frankly, rather than the banks in particular in this case, I'd absolutely have West Farmers as one of those cornerstone positions. Yeah. Okay, Michael, uh, as big a wrap on West Farmers? It's hard to add anything here to what Scott said, but maybe not as much of a wrap. I mean, it's an okay business. It's had a very good run um, over a long period of time. Um, however, we just probably think there are better alternatives that pull back more. The problem with West Farms is because it's an old school conglomerate, it's got many different parts to the business, many different exposures to many different sectors, and it can be quite difficult at times to get all parts of that business moving in the right direction at the same time. But I do think their recent sell down of their coal stake um, is timed perfectly in that they're selling an asset which has had a very good run recently, despite the big turmoil that we've seen, and it gives them a lot of cash to deploy into opportunities that in many cases will be beaten up. So that is definitely a big tick there for management as a strategic play. But again, it's, look, it's a very different business to what it used to be now that it's spun off coals, and I think that is an improvement. Um, mm -hmm. We see that as an improvement from, from our perspective. Okay, good wrap there. Good wrap for Robert Scott as well, uh, the Chief Executive of Weds Farmers, who will be joining us at 3pm on Ausbiz for uh, a bit of an update on uh, what they've been doing with their coals uh, sell down over the last couple of days and plans for the company going forward. So Robert Scott joining us exclusively here on Ausbiz at 3pm this afternoon. All right, let's go to the other end of the, end of the scale, G8 Education. Um, Michael, do you want to kick this one off? Yeah, G8 Education. This was a market darling going back, I think, three sure or four was. years. It was yeah. sort of taken off. Um, the problem for them at the moment is if you're going to have a, a huge amount of unemployment, are people going to have the cash? Um, to spend on childcare, or if you have a lot more people at home who will be able to look after their own children. Um, the thing with Geo Education is they went around, they purchased a lot of childcare, independently run childcare centres and very low multiples. Um, but once you sort of take all the low hanging fruit, you start having to overpay thereafter for each additional incremental childcare centre that you take on. And I think that was their downfall. They ended up running up a fair bit of debt to take that on, um, and they didn't get the returns through that they were once hoping for. So the problem with childcare as well is it's not that scalable and that there's a lot of government regulation as to how many staff you need per headcount. So it's very hard to drive the inefficiencies from that roll-up acquisition model that you might do from other sectors and other businesses. So for mine, um, I'll steer clear of this one. Yeah. All right, uh, Scott, it reminds me of a few Queensland entrepreneurs that have had goes at this in the past and didn't quite pull it off. What do you reckon? Surely not, Koshy, surely not. Uh, look, it's, a, it's an interesting one. GA's look, super, super speculative at this price. Um, Michael's already nicely painted the picture of, of what we might expect uh, would move the dial for GA. Now, right now, occupancy is very, very low because people are keeping their kids at home. I saw numbers only this morning up to 30% of childcare, oh, sorry, daycare places aren't being filled right now. People are keeping their kids at home. So you can't run these things at 70% capacity and make money is the first thing. 
Now investors know that that's why the shares are so cheap right now. Typically, roll, I mean, it might be 90% off its you know, all-time high, something close to that now. Uh, really, 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 really low. But the if there is a glimmer, if there is, you know, whites might be a speculative idea. I wouldn't necessarily do do it, but if you were that way inclined. The question really is how long the government funds businesses like G8 through the JobKeeper package and others to get it through onto the other side of this. Because again, a little bit like WebJet that I mentioned earlier, if when people go back to, to G8, if, if it doesn't go broke in the meantime, it's worth at least three or four times the current price as it was before the crisis. And so you've really got that trade-off. You're really looking at both and saying, okay, if this if this goes badly, it goes to effectively zero, let's be honest, there is, there is a chance that this one doesn't exist in 12 months' time. If it does, though, if it literally exists in 12 months' time, hard to imagine the current price is keeping or taking into account the full value of this at or close to capacity once everyone sends their kids back to daycare. So I wouldn't buy it right now. I think the chance of zero is too high. But I can absolutely see why people might want to and might see the value in it. Right, OK. Put that in the super speculative basket. Uh, what about Ramsey, uh, Michael? Ramsey's a, a great business. Um, private hospital operator. Um, recently, they've come under pressure. Initially, they came under pressure because people were concerned that private uh, elective surgeries yeah. would be put off. That announcement yesterday is that's, a huge bonus. That's for right. Them. So the government came out yesterday, basically said that they would fund their operations to deal with the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a real um, boost for the company. But I think um, for the long term, this is a, a very high quality business and it actually would be probably more value placed on the private hospital after this coronavirus outbreak because of the important role that they play in society. So, look, I would be tempted to look at this one um, as a good quality Australian business with a very safe balance sheet, um, which operates in an industry where there's not that many good quality competitors. Yeah, okay. Scott, what do you think? I like Ramsey as a defensive business, absolutely. It has actually disappointed recently in terms of its ability to grow. And that growth story is why a lot of people did buy Ramsey. They like the defences and they like the growth. Um, it's been a bit disappointing, quite frankly, operationally. Now, again, it depends on what price you pay and why you're buying the stock. Uh, hard to fault, as I said, the ongoing business as a, as a, as a group. I think probably a hold on it, maybe. Uh, maybe just a buy again for those defensive investors who want something meaningful in their portfolios. But the, the kind of the, the, the 12 months ago, 8 months ago theory was how could you go wrong with someone that would always be required? I actually saw that as consumer spending dried up, so did elective surgeries. Now, again, very different. It's hard to throw any of these companies without referencing the coronavirus crisis, unfortunately, but that's where we find ourselves. The, the reality simply is that elective surgeries are more elastic, more price-related, more demand-related than we expected pre maybe the last lot of economic slowdown. And, and in that case, rent is probably not as defensive, as high-quality as I certainly thought it would be, as many of us just thought it would be. So I'm probably less keen on it than I was has a place maybe alongside West Farmers in a defensive portfolio because business doesn't go away, it's not under existential threat. Uh, but one I don't think we should be paying up too much for if your aim is to, to match or beat the market index simply because I don't know that it's demonstrated it has that growth potential, particularly at a price which isn't exactly super expensive, but it's not particularly cheap either. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, Michael, what Scott's saying is that mm -hmm. we've got to almost look at a lot of these quality stocks through a different lens coming out the other side of this recession we're yeah. inevitably going into and how that's going to change consumer behaviour. And, uh, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've got a, a clicky knee, uh, you put yeah. it off for an extra two years rather than get, get the knee re, re replacement now. Yeah, I definitely take the point that Scott's making, but you're going to have a lot of 
elective surgeries that are required. So it's almost like the elastic band where they've pulled the band back, they've been put on hold, but once you get through to the other side, that elastic band will be released and you'll see all those elective surgeries taken up eventually. Um, you've also got sort of a, a situation where the private health insurance um, cap or increase has been capped. So that might alleviate some of the pressure because I, I did notice that there was sort of on average a, a four to five percent increase across private health insurance that's been put on hold by a lot of the private health insurers as well. So there are a number of different variables at play here. Certainly what Scott says is right. Um, if you're sort of out of a job, you're less likely to spend up on that clicking knee. But then again, there are some people that are desperate for these surgeries and they'll be put on hold, but ultimately they'll be taken up again. Might not be reclaiming completely what was lost, but a big portion of it will be. Yeah. All right, Scott, what about BHP? The big Australian, is this a, a classic case of it's been torn apart like everyone else on the share market and a cornerstone stock that looks pretty attractive? I think it does actually, Koshi. Again, it kind of falls in that commodity space that I'm not super keen on. But if you think about what BHP offers, and I probably I, I was a I was a fan of the old BHP rather than the new one. I think the you put the the band back together, put South 32 back on top. I think both those together are a really really attractive combination of a diversified resources exposure. If you want that, we know the oil price has been hit for six. That's going to be a, a short term issue for BHP profitability. But again, to the extent that's factored in, and to the extent that cyclicality is the friend of the investor if you use it well. In other words, if you buy at the bottom of the cycle despite the bloom, and that might be a bigger metaphor for the market as a whole right now. But if you do that and buy it at the bottom of the market, you get your opportunity to take advantage of a, a high oil price when it comes. I think it's a pretty attractive way to, to be in this sector. BHP, the big dog on campus, we know it's very, very successful at what it does. Um, really big, meaningful profit lines. If there is any concern I have, it's probably that it's already done, like all miners, it's done the most attractive stuff already. And so getting growth from here when you're already this big, when future uh, you know, capacity, resources, grades are hard to come by, that's going to be a tougher ask in the future than it has been in the past. As a literally by definition, it's not a slot on BHP, it's, it's all resources companies in general. You, you mine or you drill the best resources first because you want to make that money. Um, maybe that's the only thing I've got as a, as a bit of a watch out for BHP is you know, once its current resources are depleted, can it find new resources of a sufficient size, scale, and frankly, cost of extraction to really be able to pay back the current share price? Maybe, as you say, after this fall, it's an option. Although I would say, as Michael's already mentioned, everything's fallen. So just because something's fallen doesn't mean it's the best yeah. option out there. Certainly, though, if you want a resource exposure and you want, you don't want, you don't want to play a particular company or commodity cycle, you're not that either keen or, or very experienced in the resources space. Much, much, you know, there's a lot worse you can do. BHP and even throwing South 32 back on top. Yeah, BHP is like a, a balanced resources fund, isn't it, Michael? Well, that's <laughs> You've right. You've got a bit of everything. It's got the best quality assets and often the lowest costs or, or close to the lowest costs um, in that the various commodity. But like Scott, we actually don't like commodities because they are very cyclical and they are price takers and it's very difficult to predict with any certainty the price of iron ore or, or oil in two years or five years, whatever it may be. So it makes it hard to value. And looking back to like 1980 or whatever, if you look at the performance of the ASX, excluding resources, and then the performance of the resource sector, the ASX excluding resources has actually done a lot better with a lot less volatility. So we don't think you get rewarded for that risk. But BHP is the best of breed, and it does give you that nice broad exposure. But in five years, it's been as high as you know, $45, it's been as low as 14 now we're sort of stuck somewhere in between. 
um, coming, looking at sort of the breakdown of the, the different components of the company. Obviously, we've got very low energy prices at the moment, and BHP's got a 10 or so petroleum assets in the pipeline. They're probably going to have to be put on hold now because they're not going to be viable at these prices. We've had the iron ore price actually hold up incredibly well as China's come back to work and those production figures have picked up again. So there are different parts of the business that are actually performing quite well, but there are obviously hindrances from the energy price and obviously the coal long terms remains an issue for them. Okay. All right. Um, Scott, you were saying, and, and Michael, you're both very cyclical on resource stocks. That's why you don't like gold because it's so high. Would you be getting into oil stocks at the moment if you're looking for, for commodities that have been absolutely smashed? I think today is the first day of no agreement with OPEC and the Russians, isn't it? Um, this was the new era started today. Will it last, do you think, Scott? Oil price at 20 bucks or below? This is really, really hard. This is the hardest of all the commodities because it's actually not supply and demand. Unlike almost everything else globally, it's a supply and demand balance. We know that oil, you've already mentioned the OPEC thing, it's always been, I mean, Saudi Arabia can get it out of the ground at less than 10 bucks a barrel by some reports. And so that really means that, and it can produce more than the world needs effectively if it chose to. That if you balance supply and demand that way, there's really no reason why it can't stay at this level for the lower. I think though, if you think about the geopolitics here, the reality is the Russians, the Venezuelans, OPEC, don't want to produce this cheaply because they're trying to fund national budgets. And so at some level, while they all want more than their share and they want to do really, really well, it's a challenge to work out how to really take, I think, you know, a, a very simple economic analysis here. You've almost have a geopolitical punt and say, over time, these guys will want a higher oil price than yeah. a lower. They'll find yeah. a way to do a deal. Now there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of oil high point. Yep. All right. Um, Michael, what, what do you um, reckon on oil? Look, it's last time that analysts out there were predicting $10 oil, the oil price was close to 100 in like six months or so. So we could well see <laughs> that occur again. Um, in the short term, there's capacity for the oil price to go lower um, as sort of Saudi Arabia and Russia push for more competitive advantage or more market share, sorry. But over the long term, although, although Saudi Arabia can produce, some, I think some accounts are less than $5 a barrel, they need about 70 or 60 or $70 a barrel to meet the, the commitments that they've made to their populations. So there is that political aspect to it. Um, so I think ultimately oil price will eventually track higher. In that situation, you probably want higher cost oil producers because they're more leveraged to the rising oil price. Woodside Petroleum is a, a great, well-capitalised business with a very strong balance sheet, but they're pretty much ex-growth. They've got a lot of mature assets with low cost of production, but where does their growth come from in the medium to longer term? And they do have a couple of assets that will have to develop, but that's still three, four, five years down right. the track. So look, we tend to steer clear of oil as well, because not only it's very cyclically, but that political aspect as well with yeah. OPEC. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to uh, work out who's going to chuck the toys right. out of the playpen, isn't it? Um, all right, uh, we talked about ANZ a bit earlier on the call, and just a reminder, the call is on Ausbiz between midday and 1pm every afternoon where you give us 10 stocks that you're interested in and we put them to our expert panel. Today, Scott Phillips, Chief Investment Officer with Motley Fool is joining us on Skype and Michael Wayne from Medallium Financial. Michael, a bit earlier 
in our uh, countdown to the top 10 stocks um, for today, we had ANZ. What do you think about Commonwealth Bank? Commonwealth Bank is probably the best of breed. It does trade on a big premium uh, to the other banks, but it's probably earned that over the years. The one thing that Commonwealth Bank has done that the others haven't is they've had a very large focused investment in technology. Um, so they're sort of more the way down that path than some of the other banks when it comes to that investment. Um, the thing with Commonwealth Bank is they've got a pretty um, simple business model in that they've got premium quality mortgages throughout mainly in New South Wales, obviously all over the country, but they've got a bigger focus in, in New South Wales. And look, they're a company that has had a very good track record, but the same things that we discussed earlier with ANZ still apply for, for CBA um, in that they're going to find it very hard to continue to grow earnings at the same rate as they have in the past. Um, they've obviously got the regulatory issues coming out of the Royal Commission where they're going to have to focus their attention on risk management as opposed to pure profit drivers. There's that community expectation as well. So all those things coming together, um, that means that it's less of a profit focus than it's been in the past. So I just think that it's, I'm happy to hold it, but I wouldn't be necessarily rushing in to buy it because the income's good, but there's still a lot of headwinds. Yeah, Scott, CBA? Yep, can't disagree with, with Michael at all there. I, I think for me, when you buy CBA, you're really betting that the market's gonna keep seeing it as a premium bank compared to the rest and paying a higher multiple because if at any point the market really realises that the banks are reasonably similar, now Commonwealth Bank probably does deserve some sort of premium, but I don't think the premium is justified at the size it is on the fundamentals. Now, that doesn't mean the market won't keep paying that premium, so that's the question you've got to answer is, you know, do you try and say, I'll pay strictly what I think the bank's worth, or I'll give the market some you know, buy-in and say, okay, if the market wants to pay 20 25% more for Commonwealth, I guess that's fine with me. Uh, I'll, I'll assume it's always going to. So that's, that's the watch out. CBA is interesting because of that focus that Michael mentioned on its retail banking business. So to some extent, I do think the banks will operate largely as a pack and their returns won't be hugely different in terms of profit and, and revenue growth. But to whatever extent households do better or worse than businesses, there is the potential for that to kind of pull those four apart slightly, either in Commonwealth's favour or against it. I just can't, I think when there's cheaper banks available, I really struggle to see Commonwealth having sufficient better um, quality operations, loan book or anything else to justify the size of the premium. So I find it hard to buy them rather than one of the other four. I mentioned ANZ earlier, of course, one of the viewer picks. Um, I think to some degree, that's why I'd be looking at the cheaper bank simply because you're getting roughly the same business, or maybe it's a slightly worse business, but at a much cheaper price, mm. that's hard to go past when I do still move roughly as a group. So I would not, I, I wouldn't sell again, like Michael, if I was buying one of the big four, Commonwealth wouldn't be my first, second, or maybe even third choice. I think just purely on valuation grounds, it's got to be at the back of the pack because if it deserves the current valuation, great. But unless that valuation gap increases, again, you're going to get the same return as the rest of the market. That 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 premium is already built in. I think other banks provide more value, probably more income too, just quietly, um, and so make a better option than CBA. Okay, then rank for us one to four the the top four banks in terms of your priorities, Scott, that you you'd invest in. Yep. At this moment. Oh, okay. Uh, I think I've probably got ANZ at the top, as I mentioned. I think uh, NAB is a funny one. NAB seems cheaper, but it has its own issues to, to try and deal with, not least the, the, the management and board changes. I think that probably gives Westpac the number two position for me. So forced to rank, I'd probably say ANZ, Westpac, then NAB, then CBA. And again, not on quality grounds, but on value grounds, i.e. You know, quality at the current price. So ANZ, Westpac, NAB, and then CBA. Okay. Michael, do you have a, a similar order? 
Look, probably CBA is trading at a premium that's the record premium over the other banks. So it's hard to have that number one. So I'd probably go with sort of ANZ, Westpac, um, then CBA, and then a distant fourth sort of NAB. If you look at distant, fourth, distant NAB. fourth NAB going back to 2000 is, I think, less today than it was then. So the other three banks have actually performed a lot better over the very long run. And NAB does have that more focus on business banking. And I think business is going to go through a tough period. So for that reason, I'll have them last. But it's a much of a muchness, to be honest, with the other three. Right. Um, probably have a preference for ANZ, Westpac, and C- then, uh, then CBA, then NAB, just because okay. of the valuations that are there at the moment. I'll put in my Port Adelaide AFL hat on. I'm loving ANZ and NAB at the moment. <laughs> I thank them dear, dearly for the financing package to get through this year. All right. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, now, finally, Michael, EML payments um, been in the news again yeah. the last couple of days. Big accusation that supposedly they've got it a big discount, a, a bargain price. Uh, what do you reckon? Um, out of all the companies that we sort of touched on today, this is the one I probably know least about, only right. because it sort of took off and, and it. Yeah. And it, and and I missed it. I missed it, so I just sort of thought, oh, look, I'll, I'll look at this at another time, hopefully when it comes back. And that time has come, but essentially there's three parts to this business. It's got reusable credit cards, which are used for things like like betting accounts. Um, they have credit cards or cards that are used for your for your My Gift Cards or David Jones, and it's got a third um, business driver, which is business to business transactions, so a company might pay their supplier or something through a credit card, a one-off credit card. Um, The fact is all three of those components will likely be affected by these current market conditions. People aren't going to be getting too many gifts or spending as much on gifts as they have in the past. Um, So for mine, it's an interesting business because they were growing so well organically, as well as through acquisitions. You touched upon another one announced yesterday. I think sort of 80% of their revenue, maybe 75% of their revenue was driven from businesses they currently own. So they weren't just acquiring businesses and rolling up and boosting revenue that way. They're actually getting more out of the businesses that they had. So this company is obviously doing something right. And if there's a time to be looking at these companies, it's probably now as opposed to a month or two ago when it was running um, onwards and upwards. Really hot, yeah. Uh, Scott, do you follow EML payments? Yeah, we do. I'm not the company expert on it, I have to say, but we do follow it. It's a fascinating story when you think a company that can be down two-thirds over the past couple of months is still up 30% over the year, as you showed in that chart earlier. That's that's the EML story. It's been a fascinating... The whole gift card thing has just been amazing. Reloadable cards. Michael already done a great job of describing the business. Um, it's something that really should have legs for the foreseeable future. To, to whatever extent we're moving online, and we are, um, the, the need or the desire for reloadable and... and one-off gift cards continues to grow. Email's finding ways of basically, it's a bit like, um, a little bit like Afpay to some degree, and, and for good and bad, by the way, in that it's kind of disrupting a market that was already there, giving people a new way to do something they already wanted to do. Um, you have to have cash, you have to do the old traveler's check, like, remember back, back in the day, yep. um, gift cards, if you're giving them away or using them for a, for a company, uh, use those things now all of a sudden can be done really, really simply with EML, and the global market is enormous. So. It's one of those businesses you don't want to write off too quickly. If it is able to fulfill its mission and its purpose, it, it could literally have a zero on the share price. Now, at the end of the share price, by the way, not the beginning. Um, if you think that through, then that's kind of the size of the potential. I don't want to overrate this one. I don't want to suggest it's a slam dunk to get there. But the sheer size of the global market, and it's it's really growing phenomenally right around the world. So that's the big picture story here is like Afterpay, if you dominate Australia, you're doing pretty well. If you can transition some of that overseas, you do very well. If you can transition it to a large degree of the overseas markets, you'll do phenomenally well. And that's the EML promise 
if it's able to fulfill that one. I think it's probably just a buy for me, particularly at the current price, as Michael's already mentioned. It is so far off those previous highs. It seems like it'll get through. There was some concern about a recent acquisition basically putting the company under too much stress. It was able to renegotiate that. So that's a positive. Um, over time, we'll see how it how that nets out. Again, not a zero risk of having to do some sort of dilutive capital raising if consumers don't spend and businesses don't spend, as Michael alludes to. So that's still a really significant risk for the company. Uh, so again, one of those one of those asterisk stocks, if it gets through, it's cheap and it really could go on to, to bigger and better things. I think it's a buy. You just want to know that it needs to be, as you already mentioned, Kashi, maybe this is a, a bigger conversation, but it needs to be part of a, a diversified portfolio so that it's not going to put undue pressure on the on the portfolio if it does go the wrong way, essentially possibly to zero, not likely, but possibly more likely a very significant dilutive raising. Yeah. Um, you talk about, Scott, their uh, possibility of it may have to raise. It's not going to be the only one into the future. Yeah. Um, that's got to be a filter that you put over the whole market is on. Companies that are going to have to go to market. What I was reading just before I came on, um, I saw a wire service on Kathmandu and one of their biggest investors, investors not going to back the next raise. Um, that brings a bit of doubt with some of these companies, doesn't it? Of course, Webjet in the middle of it at the moment too. Yeah, it really does. Possibly Flight Centre as well. This, this is the this is the real challenge for investors looking forward. Like, I mean, I use I own Webjet shares. To be fully, you know, to come full disclosure. Unfortunately, I own Webjet shares. So I'm taking a pretty big paper loss right now. Um, can't trade them; they're suspended. But I'm taking a big paper loss. Here's the thing with Webjet: it was a $15 stock going in, or 15-ish going into this crisis. It's now last traded high threes. It may raise capital dollar fifty. So effectively, a a 90% fall assuming that's where the shares trade, from its previous price to its capital raising price. Now, that being said, let's say it go at least to get $1.50 and that cash is enough to see it through, then why would it not be at some point in the future around the same size profitability-wise that was going in? And if that's also true, then you're looking at a, a tenfold increase in the share price back to where it was. Even if you dilute by half, which may well be what they have to do, that's still a five-bagger from $1.50 to seven fifty. Now, Again, none of those are predictions at all. I don't do predictions. I've been doing this long enough to know not to do that. But that's the sort of potential people are looking at and saying, okay, massive risk, right? Maybe the capital isn't enough. Maybe the raising never gets away and it never trades again. That's a possible right now. I don't want to scare anybody. And again, I'm scaring myself. It's possible that happens. It's probable it raises capital at some price. That capital should be enough to see it through this crisis. But there's, not, there's no guarantee. So you've got to put all those together and, and try and line up your probabilities. If it gets through... It's probably, you know, arguably worth four, five, six times the current price. Right. So that's where the opportunity is. And again, you've got to have a diversified portfolio of them if you want to play that space. I would, I would make one extra point too. I wouldn't just add Webjet or any of these companies to ten other, ten other high-quality stocks and say that's my one specy, right? Not that I so wouldn't do it that way, but you t- you, that's a one chance in one. We know that if you toss a coin, you have 50% chance of heads, 50% chance of tails, right? But if you only toss it once. You have zero chance of getting a 50% return. You're going to get 100% heads or 100% tails. So just buying Webjet or just buying Kathmandu or just buying Flight Center or something else now, you may be lucky, you may be unlucky, but you're going to have to buy enough of them to put the yeah. odds in your favor that the sample you choose is representative enough. Yeah. Michael, that filter of, of future raisings and a lot going to, yeah. to, to come to market, is, is there going to be enough cash for them all? Well, I think in the GFC, we saw a similar thing unfold, uh, whereby companies were coming to market and raising left, right and centre. Um, and often it needs to be at a very large discount 
to make it enticing enough. So there'll actually be a lot of opportunities that come from that. Um, I think I recall things like Rio Tinto, for instance, raising at very low figures, and you could pick them up for, for very cheaply yep. through those raisings. I think there'll be enough cash to go around, um, but depending on the quality of the business, if it's not worth even tossing in more cash to maintain a company's operations when it's just going to fail again down the track, then there's no point. But the quality businesses who can show a clear path to the other side, then nothing has got me <laughs> in my head, Scott Morrison. <laughs> That's right, right. Yeah. Then, um, right. It's almost like a seance, isn't it? We're going to the other side. It's, and... a, good, it's a good phrase he's got going there. But it's essentially, if the cash is just a, a short-term support beam that will get that company through, then it'll be worthwhile. Uh, right. So as long as the company can demonstrate that and have the balance sheet to show that, then I think it's worth it. Okay. All right. Well, that gets through our, our top 10 stocks. Uh, zip. If the cochlear, uh, you guys like, Ucrest, you both don't like resources that much. Uh, the big banks you're a bit cold on as well. West Farmers, uh, you're in G8, no. Ramsey, a good defensive stock. Uh, BHP, if you want to look at that, um, that resource sector and get a good balance cross-section just in one stock. And um, Scott really likes EML as uh, maybe a play into the future, but with all of the risks attached to it. Um, gents, really appreciate your time today and uh, uh, for taking us through that. And Scott, you'll be uh, on Weekend Sunrise this weekend as well. A lot to talk about at the moment, isn't it? I will, mate. There's plenty going on. Nice, nice bit of cross-promotion, Koshi. Thank you. Uh, yep. Probably talking about uh, what's going to happen for individuals when it comes to some of the benefits and opportunities available. Uh, we'll also be talking a little bit about some of the factory risk in China and whether that's good news or not. Yeah, yeah, that that is first. Hey, just before I let you go, um, China's manufacturing figures sort of they came out when I was on air yesterday and um, on Ausbiz, and I was going, geez, these look a bit too good to be true. But if if they are true, that could be our saviour as we go through winter and our biggest customers starting to buy it. Michael, if you look at, can you believe them? Possibly, look, there's other figures you can look at, such as sort of the traffic numbers in places like Beijing and some of these other major cities, and they've pretty much improved back to where they were prior to this crisis. You can look at the coal exports, the iron ore exports, and they've picked up quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, today we saw, I think it was a Japan potentially, whose PMI was slightly better than expected. So maybe that's a theme that's out there. But look, a lot more data to come, and a lot of it's going to be quite bad. Yeah, yeah. And we will be touching bases with you both regularly. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Scott, thank you via Skype, and uh, Michael Wayne from Medallion Financial. Well, that's it uh, for the call for today. Don't forget, we are here every trading day between midday and 1pm. If you want to send us some stocks for us to put to our panel, by all means, do so. You can do it through the Ausbiz app, uh, our Facebook page on Twitter, and we will add it to the list tomorrow. In the meantime, uh, thank you for joining us on the call.